Welcome to Rooting For You, a seasonal gardening podcast for non-experts. I'm Tess and I know nothing. And I'm Elise and I know some things. Each week we'll chat about one gardening topic and then discuss the effort reward payoff by asking, is the juice worth the squeeze? Just a heads up, there might be a bit of swearing in this episode. You've been warned. Welcome to part two of our chat with Compostable Kate. If you haven't listened to part one, do go back and have a listen to that. It was such a fabulous conversation. It did go on as suspected. Elise and Kate can just absolutely bang on about this topic until the cows come home, to be honest. So go back, have a listen to that, and then jump into this one. We've got a lot of fabulous discussion still ahead of us today. So here we are, part two of our chat with Compostable Kate. Do you have a, I mean, there's a whole bunch of like composting systems out there. Do you have a number one system that's like an intro system for someone who's never composted before? Yes. Now, for if, if you rocked up to Bunnings and said that I've never composted before, what sort of compost bin should I get? They will sell you a compost tumbler nine times out of ten. You mean you mean the ones that you like rotate on? Yes. Their- and they sit out of the ground. They're quite big. Correct. Oh, I Correct. Hate those. So you can get them with big <laughs> or small ones, but they're they're removed. Yeah, mm-hmm. so do I. And so this is this is leading me to saying that's not what yeah. I recommend. But that is what so many first-time compost creators get sold, mm. compost tumblers. So they're totally separated from the ground. They look like, you know, when you go and play um, bingo. The, the, the nana game. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, bingo spin. That's exactly um, what it looks like, yeah. Yeah. And so they're basically barrels that are disconnected from the soil food web. And they are the worst things to get for beginning beginner compost creators because you have to manage them so perfectly because you don't have any of that connection to the soil. So when we're talking about microbial decomposition, which is what's happening in a compost bin, we need to have access to the soil for it to work really beautifully. When you do it in a tumbler, all of your food waste and all of the carbon, everything is coated in, in bacteria. You know, we, we I'm sitting here, I'm coated. Everything's covered in bacteria. We're swimming in it. But once you remove it from the soil food web, you have to be hyper-vigilant with how you manage things. You have to manage the moisture perfectly. You have to manage your CN ratio perfectly. Otherwise, things will fail. And with my Instagram, I have a little people can message me and say, you know, I feel like I'm a compost agony aunt and people are always saying, (laughs) my compost isn't working. And I say to them, what sort of compost bins do you have? Tumblr. Honestly, so most of my followers who have problems with their compost, it's because they're working with a tumbler. They can be useful for people that have rodent issues because they're fully enclosed. But I think the most simple system for people to get uh, it doesn't have to be a fancy bin. It can be, you know, the, the cheapest one available, but one that is open to the ground because connecting your compost mm. bin to the ground means that you're composting the way that Mother Nature composts. You know, compost is formed in nature without any human intervention. When we look at what's happening on a forest floor, you pull back the leaf litter. Underneath it is the most incredible decomposing matter, and that's because it's connected to the earth. So if you can get a compost system that is connected to the earth, you're, you're winning. You're, you're living life on easy street. 
Yeah, it's just so much easier when even managing the moisture, yes. managing the temperature, all these kind of things are just so much easier when it's got that connection to the earth versus trying to manage the temperature in a raised black box with no airflow is yes. just it's so hard yeah like, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I don't use I have a lot of different composting systems probably almost every type you could have except a tumbler yeah, me too. and I've always wondered I'm like what what's the deal with the tumblers but yeah I'm glad to hear that there is no deal people assume that aerating and turning your compost mm. is the hardest thing to do and so mm. a tumbler kind of solves that problem because you can spin it round and then that jingles up all of your waste and lets the oxygen flow through. But what people do is they overfill tumblers and then there's no ability for any air to move through the bin and that's when things really go wrong. So for people that are concerned about rodents, which is totally a valid concern with these open-to-the-ground compost bins, I always, so we've got chickens, we live in the country, we have, there's, uh, there's mice and rats in our backyard. There's no doubt about it, but they're not in any of my compost bins because I lay down rodent-proof mesh underneath the bins. And rats are actually quite interesting. People sort of think, think because there's, you know, they're like in cartoons, they're always really sneaky and conniving and people think they're like these really clever creatures. But actually rats hate being disturbed. So if you are into your compost, which I reckon once you get started most people are and you're tending to it and you're opening the lid and you're stirring it rodents actually hate being disturbed so just even just the act of aerating it is a great way to make sure there's not going to be mice or rats taking out residents but yeah I also do recommend adding rodent proof mesh because me being a city girl moving to the country I'm not actually that freaked out about rats but I am freaked out about finding a snake in my compost bin so that, that keeps them out as well <laughs> Yeah, I'm not freaked out about the rats, but a snake would throw me as well. (laughs) (laughs) Would you say you've had a decent composting fail in your lifelong composting journey? Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, and that's that, you know, it's the, the great thing, though, about composting fails is you can usually fix them with oxygen and more carbon. But I do a lot of the Kashi composting. And so that is a system that you, that allows you to compost all of your food waste. So we mm-hmm. eat occasional meat in our house, so meat and bones go in there, dairy. Oh. My kids, I've got three three little kids and, you know, the kids are the worst food waste, so any of their <laughs> half-eating things that the chickens don't want to eat end up in the Bakashi bin. And probably the worst, most a recent compost fail that I had was leaving the Bakashi lid a little bit askew and so Bakashi you need to have oxygen free conditions if oxygen gets in then your food waste Mm. won't ferment ferment it will rot and you can imagine a bin that had bones and porridge Mm. and milk and (laughs) uh, general food waste when I noticed that the lid was off it was absolutely (laughs) disgusting Uh, but Mm. with with that particular batch you know you can solve lots of problems by mm. just digging a hole and burying it. So I just buried the whole thing. So, and then, you know, the, the life in the soil dealt with it rather than me having to deal with it. And with my, actually- so I'm, I'm really into hot composting as well. And I make all of my hot compost in enclosed bins, which is a, more challenging than in open piles. But I 
still, you know, like I've basically nailed the, the hot compost formula. You know, I can I can get really great consistent hot compost in my bins, but occasionally, in terms of my fails, sometimes my compost ha- hasn't heated up, and you know that can be frustrating. But then the great thing is all compost eventually decomposes. So if, if it's not as hot as I wanted it to be, it will still get there. So yeah, it's a really nice flexible process, and I think for people wanting to get into it even if you do have a fail there is always a solution for it we in our our intro to composting episodes we didn't actually cover off on hot composting can you give our listeners just like a brief overview of how that's different from like the regular bin or open pit composting yes absolutely so hot compost once again is all down to the really magical abilities of the microbes in your in your organic matter and the particular microbes that you're wanting to harness in hot compost are called thermophilic microbes and they produce temperatures of between 40 to ideally 60 degrees celsius they actually can get hotter but you don't want your organic matter to get above about 60 degrees because otherwise you end up with a lot of nutrients off gassing the way that hot compost is different to regular compost is the way that you build it so with your slow compost bins you will be over many months adding in caddies of green waste garden waste carbon aerating it checking the moisture whereas and so you'll take a really long time to fill up your bin whereas with hot compost it's essential to build it all at once so it's a form of batch making compost you can't get the really high thermophilic temperatures if you don't fill up your compost bin at once so for me I keep my food waste active by keeping them in bakashi buckets and I am really active in autumn collecting Mm. lots of brown leaves enough to (laughs) last me the whole year and so I collect hundreds of litres of leaves in autumn and then when I want to make my next hot compost pile, I, across about an hour or so, build up the, the green and brown lasagna layers. So making sure the brown layers are always a bit thicker than the green layers. And I fill my whole bin up to the top. You have to make sure with hot compost as well, you're actively moistening everything down. So I usually have my hose or a watering can next to me and I'm wetting each layer as I go. And then once my compost bin is full, within 24 to 36 hours, you should have a big spike in temperature. So your the, the hot compost should be between 40 to 60 degrees. If it's not, wow. something's a little bit off. Yeah. And that's all because of microbes. And you can see it steaming. Yeah. 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 I've seen it on your Instagram, but that's hot. <laughs> that's- <laughs> it's, yeah. My compost gets so hot that I can't put a hand in it. You know, if I put my hand in it, I'll get burnt. I had a batch. Actually, that was another fail that I had recently. I had a batch of compost that was far too hot. So I added too much nitrogen and it got up to 70 degrees. And, you know, it can feel so exciting, but the finished product actually lacks nutrients. So, you know, you do need to monitor the temperature. So once you've built it, once you've got those high temperatures within 24 to 36 hours, then every second day for about two weeks, you need to actively aerate it because the thermophilic microbes need more oxygen. They end up using, um, exhausting the amount of oxygen within the pile pretty quickly. And you need to keep on adding that oxygen in 
to keep those temperatures nice and high. So for someone like you who's got so many different compost systems and so much compost going, (laughs) why do you make the effort to hot compost as opposed to just regular cold composting everything? Yes, that's a great question. So the Kashi compost bins for us solve the problem of dealing with high-risk foods like meat. So if I added meat into a cold compost bin, without the Kashi composting it first, you can run the risk of E. coli and salmonella uh, developing within your compost. But if you Bakashi compost them first, really acidic conditions are created within the Bakashi bin. So that means you can add your Bakashi to a cold compost bin. But for me, because we do process a lot of our community's waste, so we're collecting food waste from cafes and from my kids' school and neighbours now that I've worked out the places that I can actually get food waste from. Um, Hot compost allows you to produce finished compost fast, Uh, Mm. whereas cold compost, your organic matter may take between six months to 12 months to be finished, whereas hot compost, the active decomposition can be as quick as a month, but then you you can open up your compost bin and it looks like soil, but you need to cure it. And that's something that I think is really important for us to talk about because a lot of people don't realise that that's a step with composting that is hugely significant for hot compost. If you apply your hot compost to your soil too soon, so, you know, if you if you cooked it and looked at it after a month and it looks like soil and you thought, oh, great, I'm going to apply it to my plants, it's actually not the best idea to do that. So you need to do the curing process, which is the final step, because that allows the organic matter to become really stable and it also allows all of the uh, compost invertebrates, so things like earthworms and beetles and beneficial nematodes to return to the pile and your organic matter ends up being a lot more uh, nutrient-rich. And for some plants as well, really fresh compost is too strong and there can be what's called phototoxic elements to it which end up affecting plant growth. So letting it cool down, letting it cure letting all of the earthworms and all of the other life return to your pile is a really important part of compost making. And for my hot compost, I leave it for at least two months. And it's really, it's such a distinct change that happens after the curing process as well. Do you need to cure your cold compost? Not in the same way. So the amount of time that passes for the organic matter within a cold compost bin to actually be ready. So let, if it is between six months to 12 months, that during that time you've had that, the slow but active decomposition and the curing process has, has taken part during that time as well. Yeah. Interestingly, though, I, I like talking about cold compost as slow composting because occasionally with your, with your compost bin, even though you haven't batch made it and you're not intending it to be hot you will find that there's moments that your compost is steamy and if your your cold compost bin is really active and is producing steam you do want your organic matter to make sure it has completely cooled and it's returned to the ambient outdoor temperature before you apply it to your soil because a lot of Really important processes happen at cooler temperatures 
And you don't want to miss out on that because that means you're really being able to give all of that life back to the soil. And a lot of what happens as well with cold composting and hot composting during those final months, there's a huge amount of fungi and fungal activity that actually occur in the organic matter. And overworked soil often completely is lacking in mycorrhizal fungi and and different different forms of, of, of that sort of growth. But once you allow your compost to slowly break down during that curing process, you will often find that your, your compost starts producing fungi and that's a really, really great sign because that allows the chunkier bits of carbon to break down. So fungi actually consumes the lingon, which is just like a woody material in, in things like wood chips, helps break those down and helps provide a lot of life into overworked soils. Do you find that hot composting helps with any unwanted seeds in your compost as far yes. as making your compost weed-free? Yes. Or not that's weed-free great. but, you know, undesirable yeah, yeah. sprouting-free. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's something, thank you for mentioning it because that's a really big benefit of hot compost. Mm. So if you cold compost weeds with their seeds, you will find that some of them end up germinating in your garden because mm. – the composting process is not enough, it's not sufficient to, to kill those seeds to stop them from being viable and germinating. But heat is something that will stop all seeds from germinating. So I, I'm sure there's, uh, some of your listeners have applied worm castings or their cold compost to their soil only to have 10,000 tomato plants springing up from it. <laughs> um, and that's, that's something that's happened to you and it's a, annoyed you hot compost could be a really great solution to that so not just weed seeds but all of those you know all, all of those fruits and veggies with, with seeds if you cold compost them or worm compost them you will end up having things germinating but i do want to say it's not a big deal if things do spring out of your compost you can embrace those volunteer plants but if you don't want to be a little bit organized with your timetable with planting so if you're adding cold compost or worm casting, so both of those processes haven't had the sufficient heat to kill those seeds, apply your compost to your soil a month before you're going to add other seedlings or or, seed, or direct sow seeds so that you don't get confused what's springing up. And if you apply it a month before, then you'll see lots of things might pop up that you can knock them all back and then they become a little bit of an incidental grain manure to feed your, your soil anyway. So that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm, yeah, that's a really good tip because I have, you know, all manner of systems going, but they're all cold. I don't bother with the hot composting simply because I've kind of, you know, the system's running, so there's always something ready. But the one thing that I have thought I would really love about it would just be as you said, the number of tomato sprouters I have, you know, in spring is just out of control. Pumpkins, cucumbers, anything. As you say, they're not necessarily weeds. They're just plants where we don't want them. And I have thought I should try hot composting and see if I can really just knock those seeds out because it would be better. But, yeah, there's, there's other ways to manage it too. Oh, look, I, I think it's definitely – I think once you become not just a plant cultivator but a compost gardener, I think it's really exciting to learn different methods. And that's been something that has been really lovely and rewarding with running my Instagram is having people getting excited about a new method. So maybe they've been an mm. avid worm farmer for years, but now they're wanting to think about other ways to make sure no food waste ends up in the bin. So they're exploring Bakashi for the first time 
and finding that a really exciting process. Or maybe they have always been a cold composter and then they're dipping their toe into hot composting and getting really excited about it. Because it is, you know, I think it's, they're interesting skills to learn and, you know, each process results in a different finished product and it feeds your soils in, in, in different ways as well. So, you know, when we're thinking about soil health in a holistic approach, if you can do lots of different methods in your backyard, if you have the space, you're really going to be feeding all of that biology and life in the, in the soil. So you're, you're, it's definitely going to be beneficial. One thing we haven't touched on tonight is worm farms. Where yes. do you think a worm, I mean, no doubt we all love them, but where do you think a worm farm sits for beginners to process their food waste? I think worm farms should be something that people absolutely go with first and mm-hmm. foremost as a beginner composter. Would you go the worm farm over the bottom, the open bottom compost bin? I think it depends on your space. So, you know, mm. if you if you live, in a small urban apartment block or you have zero access to any outdoor space, then I definitely think a worm farm is a great way to go because you can get, nowadays you can get really great small compact units that you can keep indoors and when you manage them correctly and it's not that hard to manage a worm farm correctly and I'll go through some tips in a tick, you can end up, your worm farm will be odourless even though you can add a lot of food waste. You can't add everything into a worm farm. There's there's, worm, there's particular foods that your worms don't love. But they it's it's a really yeah, it's a simple process and it's also a really, you know, it's it's an exciting addition to your family because you end up being a worm parent of all thousands of worms. You know, <laughs> and they become members of your family. Totally. Um, yeah, so I think for worm for beginner worm farmers. Once again, you need to be thinking about adding all four elements in. So worm farming is an aerobic process, just like cold composting and hot composting are. So the worms need oxygen. They don't breathe through their mouths. They breathe through their skin. So they need a moist environment that they can't actually draw oxygen through their skin unless their skin is moist. So they need to have a moist environment that's full of, food waste but also carbon for them to really operate well and once again it's it's microbes that are doing a huge amount of the work in the worm farm so worms do eat your scraps but only once the compost microbes have started breaking them down so we need to create the correct conditions for those microbes with those four universal inputs because once once compost microbes have started, so if you've chucked a banana peel in there, worms are not going to chow down on that until the microbes start using enzymes and breaking down the banana and then worms come and suck up all of the microbial sort of wor- banana peel slurry that the microbes have made. So we need to be... Yeah, always providing the right environment for microbes, which then in turn provides the right environment for your worms. Mm-hmm. But it is a, it's a really great worm farms. Are, uh, I feel like are uh, pr- quite flexible because you don't need to be as stressed about carbon. You mm-hmm. can be a little bit more generous with food waste um, as long as you're keeping it aerated and as long as there's always residual bedding materials, which are carbon. Um, within your farm and you end up with really beautiful nutrient-packed castings so that's a fancy name for their poo 
that you can apply to your pot plants and garden beds as well. And, and you don't need to cure castings. They're, they're, all of their nutrients are really stable, so you can apply them to plants straight away. You spoke before about a 60-40 brown to green ratio, for, but it, you can be more flexible with that, with your worm farm. Look, uh, I'm pro- I don't want to lead anyone up the garden path with that. You do need carbon in worm farms mm-hmm. and people the, the number one killer of your worms is overfeeding them and not overfeeding them carbon overfeeding them your food waste because what happens is if you load up your worm farm with just food waste alone and you really go hard you know you eat empty heaps in when your worm population hasn't fully developed so baby worms eat less than adult worms for instance you will end up creating anaerobic, so oxygen-free conditions in your farm because the food waste will start heating up your farm, will be overly wet, and that's when you're Mm -hmm. going to end up having food waste that rots as opposed to being Mm -hmm. consumed by the microbes and the worms, and that's when things are going to stink, Uh, and that's also when worms will think, okay, I'm going to escape this farm, start crawling up the edges or potentially die as well. So you do need to slow, slow and steady wins the race with the worm farm, feeding them less scraps than, than you think. And if you want to supercharge the amount of food that they eat, making them small, so mm. uh, blending them, chopping them, breaking them down, actually means they'll consume a lot more because there's a lot more surface area for the microbes to start breaking down the food base and then the worms to come in hot and suck it all up. Yes, I'm a big fan of chucking all the food scraps in the high-powered blender, giving yeah. it a giving it a turbo, <laughs> and then feeding them a like a smoothie of food scraps. And it is amazing how much faster they consume it when it's in that form. Yes, or, you know it breaks down ready for the next. You level. know that that so that's a few reasons you, you've created a lot more surface area for microbes to get active on them, but also your your worms. So worms don't have teeth, and they basically draw the organic matter into their mouths and if you can make a really small particle size that helps them consume it so you can imagine i don't know i just almost feel like worms remind me of old people with you know without their brains (laughs) 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 but if you can make the food for them really mushy like you would old people without teeth then, then it helps them consume it Okay, I have one more question that I want to go back to that you touched on earlier with the people who have the tumbling compost bins. For the person listening to this, and I know there's going to be plenty of them, that is trying to compost at home themselves and has one of these tumbling compost bins, would your advice to that person be just get rid of it and start again or do you think there is some redeeming feature? What would you say if it's not working? Oh, no, definitely. And I, I think that we there's there's so much plastic in the world. Let's use the plastic that we have. Don't throw out your tumbling compost bin. I'll give you some tips to make it work for you. So first and foremost, don't overfill your tumbler. Once you overfill it, then the organic matter can't actually move and it will create one big lump and it won't break down. Seed your tumbler with a handful of healthy garden soil or a handful of finished compost if you've got a mate that has a compost bin or even a handful of worm castings because those three inputs are full of all of those compost and soil microbes that we've been talking about and your tumbler is disconnected from the soil food web so if you can add in some of that inoculant into your tumbler you're going to be ahead of the game because you're introducing all of the life the soil and the compost and all of those microbes breaking up your food waste as well so like what we were talking about with the worms 
it is really worth your while chopping scraps up before you add them into your mm -hmm. tumbler. And that's not just your food waste. So with your carbon, breaking, ripping things up, if you've got a lot of leaves, even mowing over them first, breaking them down into smaller bits means that they can move and tumble much more easily and moisture as well. So often with people's, the organic matter in people's tumblers, it ends up either, it's one extreme or the other, it ends up being super wet or super dry. And you do want to make sure you're regularly checking the moisture in your bin. And if it is too wet, add dry carbon. So really dry newspaper, brown leaves to soak up the excessive moisture. Or if it is too dry, then adding in more food waste or even giving it a gentle um, hose down to make sure you're really optimising the conditions for that microbial decomposition because that's what's happening in a tumbler. It's microbes breaking it down. You might end up if you've collected green, sorry, if you've collected brown fallen leaves, a lot of the time there's worm cocoons within them. And so you do sometimes have worms that hatch in tumblers and end up populating them and, and have climatized to those conditions and survive. But for the most part, it's compost microbes breaking them down and you need to give them a, them a helping hand by providing the right conditions. But honestly, I think the number one thing is don't overfill your tumbler. And then when it is 75% full, stop. Don't add more. Let it fully break mm. down. Then empty it out. You need to cure your tumbler's compost on the ground, ideally, if you can. So once it no longer looks like food waste or brown matter, if you do have access to the soil, emptying out your tumbler and leaving it on the soil for a couple of weeks will you'll end up with much, much higher quality compost than doing the whole process totally removed from the earth. They are brilliant tips. Thank you so much. I think that's going to change a lot of people's compost <laughs> game. You spoke before about the influence that your mum had on you and your sister and how this kind of became second nature for you. So you might not be able to answer this question, but like what's the number one piece of advice that you've ever been given on composting or gardening? Probably not from my mum, but I think, I don't even know where, it, look, I'm not sure where I got this advice, but the thing that I think totally transformed the way that I thought about compost, because it has been something that I've just been, you know, it's been a, a part of my life, but once I've really realised that compost isn't this inert pile of scraps, it's a living ecosystem. Mm. Once you start realising that and you start thinking about, all of the life that's in, alive within the organic matter, the stuff that you can see like worms, but also all of that invisible microbial life. Once you realise that, it just changes the way that, that you view your lonely, smelly pile of scraps in your backyard. You know, you start kind of honouring it and, and giving it the respect and the attention that it deserves because, you know, yeah, I think it, it just change, It really changes the way you think about it. And I suppose it's not a piece of advice. It's just looking at looking at compost in a really different way and getting yeah. excited about it. Hmm. It's, it's, it's reframing how you're seeing what the process is and what it can be and the potential. Yes, yes, that's right. You know, it feels like a magical process, but actually so much of the magic that's in the world is down to science and so much of it is down to the microbes. You know, it's it's... Yeah, I, I I think it's it's an amazing thing to start really really embracing. You know, even just healthy soil 
picking up a handful of healthy soil, you are containing literally billions of life forms mm. within a small handful of earth. And with compost, when it's healthy compost, you've got even more life within a small teaspoon. So, you know, I think we, there's, there's a lot that we don't know about, about soil health and it's an area of science that has been overlooked. You know, we've treated soil like dirt for too long and, <laughs> and I, I'm excited that people are, people are starting to really, well, first of all, realise how critical it is for our survival that we actually look after our soil but, all, you know, are getting excited about it in their own backyard because it's something that we can all take responsibility for and get excited about. Do your kids get involved on the composting front? <laughs> I've got three kids. So Tully, who is six, is he, he loves climbing on my compost bins and doing performances <laughs> on them. But in terms of him actively doing stuff, not, not that much. Woody, my middle child, who's three, is is quite like he's one of those kids that he hates his hands getting dirty, which I'm like, are you really my son? Um, but he loves worms. He, he really, really loves worms. And so that's he's always happy to have a poke around uh, numerous worm farms. And our daughter, Sunny, who is two, I uh, she she's a really great speaker for her age. And she will say, put in compost bin. You know, she's it's oh, just cute. I can see that it's just going to be, a, you know, it's going to be a part of all of their lives. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, which is really, you know, it's, it's great being a parent knowing that I can give them these really important skills and hopefully make it fun for them. <laughs> yeah, it's what we need the next generation doing. Everyone. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> we, do, we do have one question that we normally ask our, our guests is if money was no issue, is there anything, is there anything that you would just absolutely love or recommend that is just like the best tool the garden splurge the splurge yeah the garden splurge um i think if if money was no um concern i do often think about getting a shredder um (laughs) and for for me a big piece of machinery you can get petrol powered ones which i wouldn't want to get i would want to get one that can so an electric one um so that you're then using solar uh to power it which all of these things are totally daydreams because you know we're we're living in a house without solar that we're renting so my big dream is one day buy a house put on solar get a a shredder that i can plug into the solar (laughs) and break down all of my organic matter to give the compost microbes and the earthworms a big helping hand because the smaller the particle size, the more quickly you're going to create finished compost. We, we occasionally borrow my uncles and, yeah, that's, you know, for the end of season cleanup, like, they're awesome. But, yes, that I think that would be it. If So if I'm allowed to have a budget pick as well, um, mm-hmm. a corkscrew compost aerator, so they're about $25, is a tool that will really change the way you make compost if you're making it in a, an enclosed bin. For an open pile, a garden fork is a better aerating tool. But I do love, I have a love affair with my compost tub, <laughs> turner. So that's that's a good budget pick. <laughs> Might be more achievable for, for, for budding compost. For the average pod yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kate, I didn't think I could get more excited or more passionate 
or believe more strongly in the power of compost and you've managed to do it. So thank you so much for everything you contribute to the community and for sharing your passion with our listeners today, but also everyone on Instagram. The world is a better place for what you're doing. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's big words. (laughs) So in... In my personal composting journey, I found that there are issues that pop up along the way. Like sometimes you see a little bug or fly and you think, good bug, bad bug, don't know. But Kate's Instagram page is so fabulous for troubleshooting. And you can find her at compostable.kate. And of course, we will link that in our show notes. But I can also attest to the seriously great feeling that composting brings where you're doing something not only to help the planet, but also our own gardens and our wallets. So Kate, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you um, as part of our podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It was so nice. It's, it's probably, it's a good break for my partner not hearing me bang on about compost <laughs> <laughs> to him. So it's really nice talking about it with people that are just as excited as I am about turning your food waste into incredible garden gold. So thank you. And I, I said to Elise before we started recording, I said we can't go over on this one and we have gone over. So. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm restraining myself. <laughs> I have so many more questions that I would love to pick your brain on. You'll have to have me back. I think yeah. we will. <laughs> We'd love that. Yeah, we would absolutely love that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. It was so nice chatting. Rooting for You is hosted by Elise and Tess. Artwork by Lauren Janine. You can find us on Instagram at rootingforyoupod or email rootingforyou at elisealexandra.com. And remember, we are rooting for you.